You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 24. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Before we get started, I have an exciting announcement. Before I leave Chicago at the end of this month, I'm going to have one final meetup here in the city before I go. So if you'd like to come and join me and have some dinner or drinks, it's really going to be a casual thing, just kind of a a table with people hanging out. So you can also meet other awesome Chicago folks as well. There is going to be a little dinner on July 21st at 7 p.m. at one of my favorite little spots in Lincoln Park. I've gone to for seven years with my girlfriends for wine and drinks and dinner. So if you'd like to come, please let me know by RSVPing at jess at with-intention.com. If you send that little RSVP email back, I'll send you the details and location, and then I can also know how many people to expect for the event. And a little PS on that, I'm hoping to have a small surprise for those who attend. It's all dependent on whether or not it will be here by the 21st, but my fingers are crossed that it will. So just a little something to keep in mind for next week. Now let's get on to the show. So today we are talking about how to be proactive with our money with Mary Beth Strogerhan of workablewealth.com. Mary Beth is a financial coach who also brings accountability to her clients, and she helps people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s be proactive with their finances. So in our episode, she's going to tackle the following topics. So she's going to talk about the steps we can take to be proactive with our money for wedding planning, home buying, and preparing for a baby. She's going to tell us the financial conversations we should be having with our partners before we decide to get married, or if we are married, how to handle that age-old question of should you merge your finances or not, and if you are merged or are not merged, she tells us what we should be keeping in mind as a couple. Additionally, she's also going to talk about the important things we need to keep in mind if we are thinking about being self-employed or we already are self-employed. I learned some awesome new things myself with this. I've been self-employed my whole career, but I can tell you, I didn't know the things that she shared about disability insurance. So it's a really great listen towards the end of the show. And last but not least, she's going to talk about the common problems and money habit changes we should be making. Let's go to the show. Thank you for coming on the show, Mary Beth. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. I'm so excited, as I always say, but it's really true. I'm so excited to have you here. So let's get started with your career background. Tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Okay. So my name is Mary Beth Storjahan. I am a certified financial planner and the founder of Workable Wealth. Uh, Workable Wealth is a financial planning company for Gen Y. I leverage technology and work with clients across the country And I founded Workable Wealth last year after 10 years in the financial planning industry. So I paid my own way through college. And really, the background is just I fell into the industry my sophomore year. I got a job as a receptionist at a local financial planning firm. And uh, I kind of had a rough background with money growing up. Uh, My family didn't really have an education around it. So when I got this job just on a whim in this financial planning firm, it was super exciting to me to see how people can control their money instead of letting it control them. And I uh, just was sold. So I switched my major and climbed the corporate career ladder from there, moved from San Diego to LA after college, was associate portfolio manager for a local wealth management firm there. And then most recently, before I launched Workable Wealth, I was director of financial planning for a local firm here in San Diego. 
with your personal journey with that, was there anything going on behind the scenes, behind the career stuff that you were also working through personally with your finances? Or was it just all that education kind of made it quite simple for you personally, as well as professionally? Well, behind the scenes, you know, coming into the industry, coming from a family who didn't have a lot of education around money, it was almost like the polar opposite for me. So there was a lot of struggle. I'm just, I tend to be a saver and I tend to want to stay on track and be able to take care of myself because of those things I experienced growing up. So coming to terms with that and really understanding how my career ties into my personal experiences as well, that was something I, I came to terms with over time. And then also from a personal standpoint, the reason I work with this generation, a lot of my clients tend to be you know, late 20s, probably to early 40s, actually. So older, a little bit older than Gen Y, early Gen X as well. When I went to college, a lot of people just didn't have the education around money. I majored in personal finance and my friends majored in psychology or music or English and they didn't have the same education that I had. And when it came to graduation, we wanted to go to Europe as many other college <laughs> graduates probably do. And... Uh, you know, here I am like counting my dollars and allocating money. And a lot of my friends are trying, are calling their parents for money or trying to figure out how they can budget. So I realized there was a big disconnect there in between like today's education system and even today's industry and the focus they have on this younger generation. So that passion of mine, you know, developed in college and it stuck with me while I was building my career. So it always came back to, even though I was working with pre-retirees and those in their fifties and sixties for the past 10 years, my passion has always been in helping those who are younger. How long have you had Workable Wealth again? I launched Workable Wealth in August of last year, a little under a year. Is it going well? It's going really well. It's been really exciting to be able to build a technology-based practice. I love that it's a lifestyle business, um, super non-traditional, but so fun. And I'm, I'm able to educate people in the way that I want to. And I'm just all about not being fancy or overly complicated. It's just bringing it back to the basics. And People are really receptive to that, and it's really great to see my clients making steps. Okay, so today's episode, we're going to actually pick your brain and just kind of get everything we can out of you as much as possible (laughs) so we could actually learn and apply what you said, basically the principles that we may not have learned in our formal education to our lives so that we can really be proactive with our money. And like you've said, a lot of my listeners are also kind of in that 20s, 30s range. So there's a lot of big transitions that go on, like, you know, wedding planning, home buying and having a baby. What can we do to be proactive with big things like that with our money? Oh, there's so much. There's so much you can do. I mean, the first thing is to be proactive is is to sit down and actually pay attention to them. So many people just ignore their finances and they're afraid of them. They're scared of what their money will tell them. They're scared of what their money will tell them. Can you go into that? What does that really mean? Well, the minute you you start and sit down and you look at your spending, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm using my credit card for everything. I'm racking up this debt when I probably shouldn't be. Look at how much money I'm spending on dining out or going to the bars or look at this, you know, a shopping or should I really be spending this much money on the gym? So when you have to start paying attention to your finances, it's a bit of a reality check because when you start paying attention, the next step from there is actually making change. And a lot of people don't want to change their lifestyle. So that's a vicious cycle and people are really afraid to sit down and look at the numbers because you know, they either then know, know and are aware of the change they have to make and aren't doing it, or they have to make the change, which is also a very scary thing. Wow. So really, it's about awareness first, and then change. And since people don't want to change, they don't do the awareness mm-hmm. to begin with. Exactly. Wow. 
Okay. So how do we become aware? Well, I always say start with baby steps. So, I mean, you can't, you really can't do anything, create any kind of plan around your money until you actually know where it's going. So it really, I bring it back to the basics with all my clients. Part of any financial plan that we create is my clients getting aware of their cash flow. You have to know where your money is going. Otherwise, you have no idea how to make the change. You can say that you want to save $400 a month, for example, but if you don't have it, you know, where's it going to come from? You have to be able to pinpoint what you're going to cut back on or what adjustments you're going to make. So I always say start with the cash flow and take baby steps. So you need to at least use something like a mint.com or some sort of online program to start tracking your spending and do that for like a month or two. And then from there, you can pinpoint maybe what the problem areas are and start to cut back from there. So that I would say is step one. Okay. And then how do we know what is a problem area? Problem areas are any of those things that I call, I call those fun times areas. So <laughs> anything that's not a necessity that you are probably that you're maybe overspending on. So if you are in the red each month, meaning you're spending more than you're taking in, then the problem areas are those things that are probably that can be cut back. So those are like dining out, shopping, sometimes travels is a necessity. Anything that's a discretionary expense that is not necessary are what could be problem areas. Okay. All right. Then what's next? What's next is then you basically, once you have your spending in place, then you can start to basically figure out a plan and a strategy for how you're going to move yourself forward. So you know what you're spending. You know if you're in the red or in the green each month, you're going to then track your net worth from there. So what your net worth is, is your assets and your liabilities. So that means you're going to understand anything that you own. So your bank accounts, your checking accounts, your retirement plans, um, any homes that you own, and then you subtract your liabilities. So that's your mortgage, any credit card debts, student loans, and you have a bottom number. So the reason you do your net worth is because I, I want my clients to figure out how much debt they actually have. So if there's credit card expenses and debts that you're paying down in there, that's where knowing what your budget can do for you will help you to figure out how to pay down your debts faster, if that makes sense. We can figure out if there's any free money in that spending plan to allocate towards getting you out of debt faster and towards saving for your future faster. Okay. And then question. So I'm actually in the process of saving for a house right now myself with my husband. Mm -hmm. And when we take that on, that's going to be a liability on our net worth. So correct? Correct. Okay. Does that mean that's bad? I mean, a lot of people buy houses. No. So a couple of things. When we have, it's not bad at all. So a couple of things. When you do, before you even start with your cash flow, one of the things that you really should do is set your goals. So if you already know consciously that you're in debt, I say set smart goals for yourself. So I don't know if we talk if you've talked about smart goals on here before, but smart goals are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. So one of the things I get from a lot of my clients are same thing. I want to buy a house. I need to save for a down payment. That's a great goal. Kind of like the same thing as like I want to lose weight. So I always have to go back to to you know quantify it. How much do you want to save? How much of a home do you want to buy? When do you want to save it by? And then we can create a plan and strategy from there. So first things first would be figuring out like what you actually need to have saved for the home is one thing. So any, any goals that you set for yourself, whether it's travel, home purchase, wedding planning, career change, going from two incomes to one, setting smart goals is huge. And then, so back to your question on the home though, it's not, mortgage debt is not necessarily a bad thing. The only thing that I think is bad about owning a home is a lot of people come to me and want to buy a home or have bought a home and they have not been adequately prepared. And what I mean by that is a lot of people put all of their savings into the down payment, basically wiping out their savings. 
And why my recommendation, if you are looking to buy a house, is you need to first have your emergency fund in place before you even go towards that down payment. So you should have three to six months of your expenses saved up as a cushion for emergencies before you start putting money towards a down payment for a home. And the other things to think about for a home are um, the upkeep, the maintenance, the move-in costs. So do you have to buy any furniture? Do you have to do any painting, any remodeling? Making sure that those are in your budget and not getting put on credit cards. Those are all things to think about when you're making this move to a house. So a mortgage debt is not necessarily a bad thing. What's bad about buying a house is when people put all of their eggs, basically all of their money into that, and they have nothing left for repairs, maintenance, and haven't figured out the actual updated cash flow and what the expenses will do to their spending plan. Those are the bad things that can happen. Awesome. Okay. So it's not that looking at your net worth, if it theoretically goes down with a you know mortgage, that's not bad when you're looking at your net worth overall. Yeah, well, your net worth actually won't go down with the mortgage, typically, unless you're buying a house that's worth less. So because you're going to add the value of the home onto your net worth statement as well. So it's an asset on your... Yeah, yeah, your home will be an asset. Yeah. Oh, thank you. (laughs) All right. Thank you. That makes more sense. Thank you. I know. We're actually doing a lot of what you've shared already, actually, because of our episode number three from The Lively Show with... Eric Williams of Words of Williams, I'll link it to the show notes. They After his whole story about removing $40,000 worth of debt, my husband and I did what you said. We did this big, like, let's look at the finances. Let's see where it's going. It was shocking. A little bit sickening, actually, to see how much we were spending on the fancy restaurants we used to go to in <laughs> Chicago. And, and I say used to because then we were like, wow, if we just save some of this, we could really make huge progress, actually, on what we wanted for that down payment. So yeah, it's it actually makes it easier to also move yeah. Chicago yeah. <laughs> because we're not going to those fancy restaurants anymore. But anyways, yeah, that's kind of my own story with that. So how about wedding planning or having a baby? What do we have to think about with those transitions? So wedding planning, the transitions that kind of come up when, so wedding planning in general. So if you're planning the wedding, as with anything in, in life, it's really going to be about setting priorities. So if you're planning and paying for your own wedding, again, how important is this big day for you versus possibly a down payment on a new home? So making sure that you're educated and aware of the decisions you're making today and how they can affect your future. Actually, it's hilarious you say that because um, I'm on almost my two-year anniversary with my husband and we eloped for that exact reason. It's because it was more important to us to have money going towards a down payment than it was to a wedding day. So we eloped and saved a lot of money in the process. Which is, that's fantastic. You know what? A lot of couples just don't even have that conversation about where could this money be best spent. Some couples don't even talk about money pre-wedding, which is very scary, or traditional roles or what their experiences are. So I think the, that's huge that you guys did that. Here's my thought on that. It's always like, what did, well, especially as a female, it's a very emotional decision as well as a financial one. And for me growing mm-hmm. up, I always dreamed about my home. I would look at Ethan Allen catalogs as like a seven-year-old <laughs> and like save them and dream of my house I'd have one day, which was going to be cobalt blue and Granny Smith apple green, of course, because that um, was... Those are my colors. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> that was what I was like totally going to have as a seven-year-old living in my, you know, 30-something house. But when we really looked at the wedding thing, I had never imagined that part. And I really wanted my family to see my home that I cared so much about. So when we did the elopement, we ended up having a family party here in Chicago with all of our family coming into town for this celebration, a nice dinner, and then also got to have a cocktail party in my house, or well, my apartment, that was beautifully decorated and was and I could afford because of not having the wedding thing in the first place. So something to think about is like what emotionally is also, what have you really been dreaming about as well as like financially planning for. 
Exactly. It is. It's about priorities too. Like what makes the most sense for you? What do you want? What do you desire? And having that conversation with your significant other too. Marriage is the blending of two goals and two completely opposite money histories and money uh, paths. So coming together and having those conversations ahead of time is super important. For the those that do want to have a wedding, what should we think about? Just prioritize? Is that pretty much it? With a wedding, something things to think about. So prioritize by that one of the things, for example, that my husband and I did is we set our non, two non-negotiables. So what are the two things that we are willing to spend money on because we want to have like the great experience? And ours was a photographer and the music because we wanted to have the party and the atmosphere and, and everybody to have a good time. So those were our non-negotiables. Everything else for us was like up for up for negotiation down. So my wedding dress was pretty cheap. I, the best thing that I can recommend for brides, my best friend got me this book called Bridal Bargains. It's fantastic. It was really helpful. So I think prioritizing and having the conversations about the wedding and the budget that you're going to have, setting the budget and working backwards from there. Don't just go get quotes and then figure out what you end up with. You want to figure out what you have to spend and make it all work within that. And you want to include like you want to include everything from the actual big day to the honeymoon to the rings. All of the little things should be included in that one budget so you know what you're trying to work with and you know going out the door with. And, and that's the thing is the minute you add wedding to anything, prices skyrocket. I always try to negotiate, you know, just figure out what prices are without wedding in front of it. And then you can use that in your kind of in your corner when you're trying to get prices down. So I think just leveraging, prioritizing, having the conversations in terms of planning the big day, that are gonna, those are going to be the best things. I always advise my clients just to make sure that they understand what they're doing today that could affect them tomorrow. So that's kind of how the, the way I talk about it in terms of planning for that one big event. In terms of the couple and the relationship, though, there's a lot of conversations you should have before you even choose to get married in terms of understanding each other's finances. So understanding, do you, are you bringing debt into the marriage? Do you have spending problems? Uh, what kind of experiences do you, did you have with your money growing up? I don't know. Did you and your husband talk about any of this stuff? Yeah, we definitely did. And we have continued to have those conversations since the beginning as well. How should people approach that if one of the people in the relationship doesn't want to talk about it? If one of the people doesn't want to talk about it, I think that's kind of a red flag. And I think it's something that does need to get broached ahead of time. So one of the easiest ways to go about it is is to make it as non-threatening as possible. So one of the things I always recommend for clients are money dates. (laughs) <laughs> so what those are, they, they sound a little cheesy, but they're super fun. So you just put a recurring date on your calendar for like a Thursday night once a month. You have an agenda. So I always say, you know, have the topic set out ahead of time. So it's whether it's reviewing goals, reviewing your spending. If you're just getting married, it would be, you know, talk about like your family's experiences with money. Talk about your experience with money. What are your fears? What are your hopes? You can have an agenda laid out a week or two in advance. Put it on the calendar. Grab a bottle of wine And just sit down for the night and just talk about it. And if you have the questions laid out ahead of time to talk about in an open environment, I think that kind of takes some of the anxiety out because then it's not, you know, nobody's being bombarded or pinpointed. And and that's unfortunately one of the things you need to get comfortable with before marriage. Because if you go into a marriage and are already insecure and not talking about finances, that's just um, a little bit of a recipe for disaster if you're not disclosing what each other has done in the past or experienced. Here's another question. I've gone to a lot of weddings myself this summer, so I know a lot of people are still in that phase. So when you're combining finances, basically, should people combine their finances or not? That's a really good question. Um, These are all actually going to be covered in my, I'm doing a newlywed money boot camp. um, (laughs) I'm uncovering all these questions. We'll put a link into it for anyone that wants to go deeper. 
So merging finances is a great question and it really is couple specific. So I'm not pro or against it. I'm just about communication. So again, if you merge finances, the thing that it's great about it when you're merging accounts is that it helps for accountability and just for clarity. You can see everything in one account or in, in like you shared accounts. There's nobody who is missing certain information. So it's just kind of a little bit clearer when you have everything together. You can see habits. You can track things as a couple on a joint basis. Sometimes, though, people want to keep things separate. And when you're bringing debt into a marriage, sometimes accounts are kept separate because one person just feels responsible for paying down that debt on their own and they want to keep it on the outside. Whether you do joint or separate, I think it's important to have joint goals. So if you have separate accounts, that doesn't mean that your lives should be managed separately and that you should just do everything 50-50. You should come together again for those money dates and set joint goals for yourselves as a couple, whether it's the down payment on a home or the traveling or anything else, and then work together from there. You want to make sure that you're still communicating on things while things are separate. But I think I have clients who do both, and I think it works really well in terms of just if you stay in communication with each other. Just having joint makes it easier to actually track your cash flow. Okay. And then what about people that are approaching baby time? So what about having children? Is there anything financially we need to prepare for? Oh my gosh. You need to prepare for everything. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure. No. So if you're thinking about having children, one of the things to think about, so that's a prime time to basically review your whole financial house. So it's kind of like a comprehensive financial planning thing. So you start with understanding your cash flow. For example, like I said, if you're already in the red each month, Try and figure out how you're actually going to fit in expenses for a baby too. Diapers, formula, food, daycare if possible. You know, daycare these days is like the price of a small mortgage. So <laughs> um, understanding how those things are going to work into your spending plan and if you're maybe planning on a, on a transition from like two incomes to one. So having the conversations, the cash flow is one of the first things to understand. Making a list of things you'll need to buy or register for, depending on you know what your family situation is. So obviously, there's like the cribs, the strollers. Understanding how that's going to affect your cash flow and saving for that. Then there's the insurance aspect. So health insurance coverages. When you have kids, you need to review your life insurance because now you have somebody else to pay for and you're accountable for. So taking into consideration providing for them for the rest of um, or through their age 18. So life insurance is huge. Another thing that's really overlooked by people is their estate planning. So when you have babies, you know one of the first things you should do is have those conver- those really tough conversations, and they're uncomfortable. But you know guardianship provisions are really important. Having powers of attorney, having that discussion with your significant other about you know what you would want to happen in case something happened to you and they had to make decisions. Those are some really big things to think about when you're going down the path of having a baby. I've never even thought about that, but that makes so much sense. Yeah. All right. So is there anything else in terms of those types of money transitions or life transitions we need to do to be proactive besides set our goals, become aware of where our money's going, and then make changes accordingly? Yeah. And then just get started. So make changes accordingly. So one of the couple of the huge things that I see. So if you're employed, a lot of people are just not taking advantage of their employer benefits. They're just, I mean, they get, you typically have, you know, some employers provide insurance, 401k matches. A lot of people are leaving money on the table. So I think taking reviewing your employer benefits is huge and then setting savings goals for yourselves and automating it. So if you want to max out your Roth IRA, for example, I always say do a monthly contribution, turn it on automatically from your checking account, made it, and then you won't have to think about it. So it's basically done for you. So I think those are some huge things to think about is just getting started and figuring out how you can get yourself on an easy trackable system. 
what is your take on budgets pro or against pro totally okay. pro and do you have any favorite tools to, to budget mint.com is the one that I recommend for a lot of my clients. It's just super easy. You can sync up all of your accounts. You can do your credit cards, your debit, your debit cards, et cetera. Everything's analyzed for you. You can set budgets in there. So for example, like if I have a going out expensive, like I only want to spend $200 a month on dining out and I am to that spending point by like July 15th, mint will send me an email and like a little virtual slap on the wrist saying, Hey, you've exceeded your budget. Stop spending money um, <laughs> on, you know, expensive dinners or whatever. So there's great reminders. And then it also lets you track your net worth. So I think it's a really good one-stop shop for uh, clients, whether they're tracking their personal expenses, but it's also great for business expenses as well. And what do you think about Ramit Sethi's kind of point about not budgeting, but just automating all of the expenses to begin with? So then you use whatever's left over for what you have without any specific categories. Um, I think that's great, too. I think it's it's one way or the, you know, it, whatever works for other people. But I usually typically have my clients, I want them to be aware of what they're spending. So that's why we start there. Okay. In each area specifically. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And I know that there's about 50% of the listeners who are small business minded, whether they are full-time or whether they're trying to go full-time or they would like to go full-time with their own business. So quickly, I'd like to kind of find out basically, are there any real important things that we should be thinking about if we are thinking about going full-time or already are full-time in a small business for our personal finances? So before you go full-time or even go before you even start down the path of like the the part-time, the side hustle or the full-time, it's having a clear vision around what you think your expenses will be for a year, two years. So setting some, again, some doing like a rough budget. So when I launched Workable Wealth, for example, most traditional financial planning firms are like, you know, huge old school mahogany desks. They have office space. I run my practice out of my home. I work virtually with clients. I have a laptop. I am paperless. So whereas most financial planning firms have like X amount, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to start up, I was able to launch Workable Wealth on like $12,000. So really awesome for me to be able to do. So I was able to save up money ahead of time for that launch. So before you launch, figuring out what kind of software is the technology, space, all that stuff you need and getting that as a goal is huge. And then once you go side hustle and we are making the transition to full time, then it comes into understanding where your income is going to come from. So if that's from a personal finance standpoint is... Are you going basically, you know, from two incomes to one possibly for a year or two if you're in a married couple or if you're on your own, do you have savings set up on the side that you can live off of for a year or are you planning to really hustle and get your income and cut your costs um, as like a starving startup initially or or are you doing fantastic and you're going to be fine because you're making the transition? So understanding where you're at with the income is going to be one of the first things you can do from a personal finance level because a lot of entrepreneurs, one of the things that I see from being in the um, kind of on the online entrepreneur side of things now is it's like almost the cool thing to do to be in debt. <laughs> and it's it's just like, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm in debt because I took these courses or this online course. And I'm trying to do this and this business didn't work out. I see that a lot. And it's I really just can't condone that. So for my- really, are they using credit cards to finance that? 
Yeah, a lot of people are using credit cards. Yep, huh. mm-hmm, to finance different courses that like are supposed to help their businesses, and um, some people are really like personal development junkies as well. So they like will sign up for any course or class they can, um, but not really actually take action on them. So that's some of the some of the things that, that I've heard and seen um, through different consultations that I've done. And if that's you, that's totally fine as well. It's just a habit that should be changed. <laughs> so I mean, it's not it's not fine. I mean, it's it's okay not to don't feel bad about it, but it's it is something that needs to be changed. So I think that's the first thing is understanding where you're in is going to come from and trying not to go into crazy debt to make your dream come alive. Um, that's kind of the one thing I, I say with any entrepreneur. Once you're established, though, the things to think about from a personal finance standpoint are you're no longer employed. So when you're making the transition to full-time um, or to like, so when you're a business owner yourself, the only person responsible for your benefits, for your insurance, for your retirement, that is all now on your shoulders. So if you had an employer who was covering all of this stuff for you or providing you easy access so you just had to like check some boxes, it's not going to be the same anymore and you need to pay attention to these other these other things now. So you're going to need to find your own health insurance. You're going to need to set up and be responsible for your own retirement funding. That's why I talked about automating it. So um, doing things on your own from this side of so setting up the Roth IRA funding or whether it's a SEP IRA or a solo 401k. Those are all things you need to think about for your future self and get started on on your own because nobody's actually going to make you do them. If you're not working with a planner of sorts or you're on your own, you need to be motivated there. Disability insurance is huge. I'd say that's a thing overlooked, especially with our generation. Our, like, if you think about it, our ability to earn an income is like our biggest asset. We are income earnings for the rest of our lives. And for most, I mean, you're 40, however old you are, you're planning on working until you're about 60, 65. Um, and you have more chance of getting disabled than you do of dying, actually. So more people have life insurance than they have disability. But disability insurance, I mean, if, you, if you're pregnant and you have complications, if you, there's cancers, there's just like injuries, there's tons of different things that, are, that you know, could happen in terms of a disability that you're, and you are now responsible for your own income through self-employment. So I'd say that's one of the big things is to make sure you have disability insurance. Is that expensive? I've never actually known that. And I've been self-employed my entire career and I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not too expensive. No, it's, it's a little bit more expensive than life insurance. Um, you can usually get for dif- dif- disability policies, you can get different things like any occupation or own occupation. So it means like if you were disabled and you couldn't just do your job anymore, it would pay you. Or if you were disabled and you couldn't do like any job, it would pay you. So there's different there's different ways to work with it. But being on the younger side of things, disability insurance is t- it tends to be cheaper for you know twenty and thirty somethings to lock it in. So you want to lock in the rates when you're younger. So if you get hurt or something, you couldn't do your job, then they would give you money. Is basically what you're saying. Exactly. You would be able to file a claim, show your doctor's like notes or whatever your records are, your medical records, and they will they will pay you out. So and that's for like a certain a certain period. Typically, I mean, if you're if you have long-term disability, it's usually until retirement age. So, um, but a lot of people are, are, you know, it's between like 18 to, t- to 24 months that you're disabled at some point. So I think that's one of the huge things too for entrepreneurs. And that's really overlooked. I always thought disability was like, if you get injured and you're kind of like doing something manual or physical labor. So what you're saying is if you're, let's say you're a consultant or you're a designer and you couldn't do your job, you could, st- for some reason you got hurt, you can get paid or get money based on that insurance. Yep. Exactly. Wow. I always thought it was like for people that were doing really physical jobs, not self-employed people doing consulting, for example. Yeah, there's a really big, uh, I think there's just like a lack of education around what disability actually means too. And a lot of, you know, the media basically says that younger people think that they're invincible and it won't happen to them, quote unquote. But if you look at the numbers in terms of like diseases and cancers and um, pregnancy related or childbirthing issues, there's 
uh, quite a few opportunities for consultants and you know women and men in general to just be out of work for a while. And the disability insurance is it's an income protection, so that's something that most self-employed people should have in case you are. So lots of like doctors, dentists, different people have that as well because you know if you're out of work, that's anybody who anybody who has an income should be should be looking into that. And unfortunately, they don't. So. I know. I always called it like you're a hunter and gatherer. (laughs) When you're starting out, I always felt like if I didn't get up, I'm not going to pay the bills. I'm like a hunter. I have to go out and find that money with Jazz LC when I started. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's something. Wow. Okay. Is there any other common money mistakes that we're making that you see Uh, your clients make? I'd say just overall leaving money on the table. So uh, I think I mentioned like just the not taking advantage of employer benefits is one of the huge ones. So if there's a 401k match, and you're employed, or there's some sort of benefits covered by your employer, take advantage of anything that they can provide you, you know, because it's free money. Why not? Um, another way people leave money on the table is when they're paying down their debt. They have lots of credit cards and, or student loans. And so people will tend to want to throw a little bit extra towards each balance to make themselves feel like they're chipping away a little faster. So it'll be like 50 bucks extra towards each balance each month when you have maybe three or four credit cards. And ultimately, that's actually not the best way to go about it. So the best way to go about it is actually to target that highest interest rate first, because that is typically, not always, but typically the one that is costing you the most, the highest interest rate. So I always tell clients, reallocate their spending, put anything extra that you're paying on your debt towards that highest interest rate balance first and then work your way down when it's those personal debts. So it's the credit cards, car loans, um, student loans. Just work your way from highest interest rate to lowest interest rate and that will help you to make the best use of your money. That's awesome. That's kind of like the snowball effect, right? Yeah, the snowball effect is actually, is kind of like reverse. Snowball effect is where you do that. You target the lowest balance first. Okay, I see. All right. Yeah, so there's two different ways to do it. But the, snow, the snowball effect is actually a great one too because that's like the really inspiring one where you're just, <laughs> you, you are, you're like getting things done a lot faster that way. So I always, I do let my clients decide which one. Um, most of them will want to just do the, the money conscious one, but some people just really want that kick in the pants of getting something crossed off their list and they'll do the smallest balances first. Yeah, actually, my husband and I, when we got serious about the house payment stuff, the first thing we did was to eliminate some of the student debt loans that we could really tackle quickly and then leave some of the longer term ones that had lower interest rates as we started saving on the other side as well. Exactly. Is that a good thing to do, by the way, <laughs> to still be saving for a house while we are making some payments on low interest student loans? Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, I think, again, it's all about balancing. So you'll hear different things from different people who say, like, no, you should pay off all of your debt first. But ultimately, it's about making sure that you're just working towards both. I think it's it's fine. And you feel people feel more, more excited and motivated if they're working towards that goal that really excites them as opposed to like throwing all their money towards debt and feeling like they're putting things off more. So I think it, there's definitely a psychological, emotional balance of the money side, too. So I think doing both is fine. Yeah. And the idea before that, when we weren't really there, it was like, well, then why even bother saving on either side of it? It was like, well, at least the house, it's like, yeah, you're making more progress. There's something more tangible that you're going to see from it. You're also being responsible with the debts too, versus like you said before, not having any awareness and just kind of spending the money that you have elsewhere because you don't want to either put it towards all of your student debt or towards a, a home payment. Exactly. Awesome. So what doubts or resistance, taking a more personal turn, have you had to face in your career or life? I think the biggest thing was starting workable wealth. So with my family um, and even in the industry, financial planning is very old school, um, very kind of like old boys club. So being a young woman in the industry was 
a struggle. There was a lot of like ageism, sexism, just a lot of different things that you experience uh, over time. And being uh, the one in my family who actually went to college, got the degree, was building her career. I had worked my way, I had climbed my way up the career ladder. And, you know, one of the things I earned early, early on was nobody will look out for you like you look out for you. So I kind of just started climbing career ladders. I hopped around companies a bit to get to where I was. And I had a really, I had a nice income. I could have had a nice career path where I was at before. It was a really great company to work with, but my, I just wasn't passionate about it. And so as I mentioned, uh, working with Gen Y or working with younger couples, in the industry, there's a lot of disconnect and a lot of people told me, no, I couldn't do this or no, you shouldn't do this. You know, that Gen Y has no money. Gen Y has no interest in the advice. Um, you need to manage assets. People need to have like a million dollars in order for you to, you know, make money off of their money type thing. So there was some really old ideals about the way um, a business should be run and financial planning should be done. And I met a lot of resistance with my desire to help to help this generation. And um, from a family standpoint, also, you know, they were my parents and my my extended family. Everybody's very proud of me, and have always encouraged me and follow my dreams. But I faced a lot of resistance in launching Workable Wealth, a lot of questioning, and you're going to give up, you know, the income of this amount to to do what? And you're going to go after this generation that doesn't have anything? And how are you going to make a living? And so there was a lot of. Um, there was a lot of negativity and resistance that I just faced um, all around, and my parents are still two of my you know biggest fans to this day, and so is my husband, um, who was actually always supportive of that. But I think I felt I I, I experienced a lot of resistance um, internally and externally with my industry and family, and it was hard. It was hard um, to be to feel the conviction of starting my own thing and and being different and taking the different route. So I'd say that was probably the the biggest struggle, and that is what pushed me off in launching. So I actually, you know, three or four years ago had a financial, personal finance blog. That's like a big thing these days too. Like people who blog about their debt pay down or educational or types or other other types of things. I had a blog under an alias though because I couldn't have it live because I didn't want people to know, you know, this was my passion was educating, you know, 20 something women. So, um, you know, that right there, I mean, that was, you know, and that was three or four years ago. And so leading up to the launch of Workable Wealth. I think that was probably my biggest struggle and one that I'm so glad I overcame though and that I, I still am so thankful that I just took the jump to to be different and to to do something that I'm passionate about. Now, what did you do to overcome it? What was the ladder that you used? So the ladder that I used, I probably about, so I launched Workable Wealth in August of 2013. I moved back to San Diego because my husband was in the military and in working with this firm that I was at, I really started to do some research online and to take advantage of the communities that I was in. So um, there was a networking um, continuing education organization for financial planners that had a, a women's group and they developed a mentorship program. So I had found somebody who was doing something similar, um, who just was basically her personal brand was making things really fun and exciting and just was able to be like a fun financial coach and basically own it. And I, so I reached out to her for like a mentorship type thing. And that was probably early 2012. And from there, I just started to do research. I started to see who else was doing things, how I could serve my market. I reached out to other like actual talking heads. I was never afraid to send an email to somebody who was probably like viewed as like unattainable to others. Like some people were always like, do you email them? And I'm like, yes, what's the worst? They don't respond to me. But, you know, wait, who's the biggest person that you reached out to in that way? 
Um, there's somebody who I like how people in my industry, they view him as like unattainable. Um, his name is Michael Kitsis. He's a really phenomenally smart person. Just be, like, he's very kind, very smart, very, I mean, just the smartest person I probably know in the industry. He does a lot of speaking, education, gets paid to travel around, talk about these things. And so when I was getting ready to launch, I sent him an email and I had already been, I had already gotten active on social media also. So I was using Twitter and trying to, you know, engage that way. What's one of the things I say is always use social media to your advantage. So I had tweeted and kind of did a little conversation here and there. And then I sent him an email and asked him for advice or if he knew anybody I should, I should reach out to or contact and um, just learn about. So he actually put me in contact with two or three other people. So I just started to, I reached out to a few people and then just started to connect from there. So I built my base and my knowledge base before I launched. And I just gained more and more confidence the more research I did that I was doing the right thing. Gotcha. So you really took the actions that proved that it was doable before actually going full-time. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things was my husband was actually deployed when I decided to launch Workable Wealth. So he was on, he was literally on a ship in the middle of the ocean. And um, this firm that I was with, again, I talked about that career path that I could have had. They were gearing up to, to put me on a career path that just didn't feel right for me. It would have been very rewarding financially and um, it could have been great long-term, but it's just something I wasn't excited about. And so the more they geared up for that, the more that my instincts, my insides were just telling me no. And I still felt like I wasn't ready to launch Workable Wealth, though. I was still terrified. Like everything, my being was just like, I was just torn and so stressed out to the point where when your face breaks out, you're that stressed out. Like, I'm like, great. <laughs> Not only am I trying to be a professional woman, I was like a 12-year-old. But yeah, so then I sent my, my husband an email and we just like, it was via email. They was like, all right, let's do it. So I went into my employer the next week and let them know that I appreciated the opportunity that I was looking actually to launch my own thing. And they were so supportive. And it was so great that I actually transitioned out like slowly, I stayed on to do some consulting with them for a while. And it was actually um, really great. I'm still in in great contact with them as well. So I think I the way I handled it, I wouldn't change because I was able to maintain my professional relationships with them as well. And now obviously we serve completely different markets. So if there's somebody who comes to them who they can't quite work with, they can refer them to me. That's fantastic. And what you've shared about the resistance there was interesting, right? So you had the intuition that was like, no, 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 don't go for the career path that they were grooming you for. But at the same time, your ego is freaking out in your head going, oh my God, I can't do this now, right? So there's yeah. like, there's two different sources of resistance and you had to follow your intuition rather than the resistance your ego was presenting. Oh yeah. And it was, I mean, launching was probably the scariest, most exciting thing that I've ever done, but it is, it's beginning. And one of those things is, especially growing up in a family where you have struggles around money, giving up a steady paycheck is scary, but it's also wrapping your mind around that mindset of like, somebody else will always be responsible for your paycheck then for giving it to you. You always have to count on somebody else for your income as opposed to counting on yourself. So that was one of the things um, that really drove me to, to launch. So what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? I think just starting out on having your own business, I would tell them to not be afraid to be different. So I really pride myself with Workable Wealth on being different in the industry. And um, most financial planners websites you go to have like the older retired couple on the beach or like lots of like, you know, dollar symbols and like stock market stuff. (laughs) And you go to Workable Wealth website and there's like, my face is huge. Um, but, But there's really fun and inspiring quotes. And I make it very personal and just like you're having a conversation with me. I... Um, and very basic. So, and that's really worked well for me in the media with clients. It's bringing it back to the basics. You know, I don't talk to my clients about when it comes to investments, for example, people will jump right in 
most of my clients don't understand, and probably most of the listeners don't understand, like what a stock or a bond is. So it's all educational based, and that's what sets me apart. And so whatever can set you apart in your industry or whatever you're doing in your career, what can make you stand out, whether self-employed or employed, I think not being afraid to be different and embracing your uniqueness is what's going to help you to be a shining star. Um, when you blend in, it's really hard. It basically just muddles things even more and it, it, you don't get your own voice and you won't get the recognition that you're waiting for. Well said. Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun. And there you have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to send Mary Beth a message, please go over to Twitter and send her a message at Mary B. Storge. That's M-A-R-Y-B. S-T-O-R-J. Thank you guys so much. And if you want to come to that meetup here in Chicago on the 21st, please send me an email at jess at with-intention.com. I hope to see you there. It'd be so great to give you a hug and say hello and meet you face-to-face before we head off to Texas. Have a good one, guys. I'll see you next week. 